This is episode 64 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the final days of Alois Kastner. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode number 64. Ah, so, um, <laughs> this is all my fault. Um, the last episode of the podcast, 63, I um, I kind of rushed it out. I didn't want to go another week without a podcast, so I put episode 63 out the way it was. And then as fate would have it, some of the deeper questions that I had in regards to the podcast were answered really quickly right after I published it. So um, that's what 64 is. It's uh, answers some of those deeper questions. And um, I think you'll enjoy this uh, closure to the life of Alois Kastner. Before we do that, however, a quick reminder that there is a Potter and Potter auction on April, uh, April 24th. 2021. The catalog's online to view, and as usual, there are some wonderful pieces to drool over. I haven't won anything uh, all year long, so um, who knows? Maybe this next time is the charm. Also, the Magic Collector's Corner is back for a reunion show on April the 18th. This is David Sandy and Lance Rich, so check that out on Facebook. A very uh, anticipated event, I should say. And then finally, Haversat and Ewing have an auction on April 16th and 17th, so be sure to check that one out as well. The catalog for that is online. You can view it right now. Oh, and uh, John Cox from Wild About Houdini was recently all over the news with his report of the family who found Houdini posters in the walls of their bathroom. They were redecorating and taking out the walls, and lo and behold, here were these Houdini posters. He was even lucky enough, or wealthy enough, to obtain two of them, so congratulations on that. And now, something else from the archives of The Magic Detective. Uh, this one's interesting, and sadly, I... I haven't been able to verify it 100%, but I'm going to share it with you just the same. Back in 2010, I found myself falling deep into the well of Ancestry.com. And if you've ever done that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, In other words, I was addicted to researching my own family ancestry. Within days, the things that I had discovered about my own family were mind-boggling. Uh, and I and I would share these discoveries with my dad, and he, and he would say, "Never heard of that. No idea." So <laughs> that's how that played out. But but you know, there was a change. I'll, I'll mention um, what I had discovered was there was this whole town in South Dakota where it would appear that's where my ancestors had uh, settled when they came here to America from Norway. And turns out that we were related to most everyone in this little town. Um, And the confirmation came when a woman who was apparently a distant cousin sent me a photo of her grandfather. 
and in the image was a picture of his two brothers. One of those brothers turned out to be my great-great-grandfather, or I'm sorry, my great-grandfather, who was my dad's grandfather. And when I sent the picture to my dad, he looked at it and he said, well, that's Grandpa George right there. And I said, yeah, that's Grandpa George. And those are his two brothers, which nobody apparently uh, knew anything about, which was eye-opening. And and that's when things got a little crazy. Um old hundred-year-old photos were showing up left and right. And my great-grandmother, uh, this is really fascinating. Uh, was it my great-grandmother? No, my great-great-grandmother. Um, I had a picture of her on, on the farm there in South Dakota, and she bore a striking resemblance to my dad. Same facial bone structure and everything, and it was crazy. In fact, I have this one photo of her in her garden, and I swear it, it looks like my dad wearing a dress in the garden. That's how close they, they, they looked, uh, you know, in the face. And then uh, my great-great-grandfather, Ole, I began to do some research on him, and he was all over the place. He was in South Dakota. He was in Minnesota. He was even in Wisconsin. And at one point, when doing all this research, I, I decided, yeah, you know what, let me get back on the magic uh, research, the magic detective stuff. And I started to research a upside down uh, hanging straitjacket escape that Houdini had done. And the newspaper, one of the newspaper clippings I saw, listed the people that put Houdini in the straitjacket. And lo and behold, I couldn't believe my eyes, but there amongst the men putting Houdini into his jacket was my great-great-grandfather, or I think it was. The name was listed correctly, including the middle name. The location was accurate for the time. The problem is, is there's no family history of the event, the event um, but I don't know that that's a big issue because most of my family didn't even know about uh, my great-great-grandfather. For whatever reason, uh, it just wasn't talked about. So um, it could be 100% true, or I have no way of actually verifying it except for that that newspaper article. And I, I would never even known about it if I hadn't found that. Oh, and then this is kind of weird. So there's this, like I said, there's this town in South Dakota where um, my great-great-grandparents had settled and nobody on my side of the family knew any anything about this. My, my, my mom, my dad, they didn't know anything about it. Yet, there were people in that town that knew all about my grandparents and even my parents. And I remember visiting this one lady who was 90 years old, and she gave me a photo of my mom and dad uh, at a funeral. And I was like, are you kidding me? So they all knew about my side of the family, but for whatever reason... Uh, we didn't know about uh, their side of the family, so so crazy. Anyway, this whole Houdini connection thing was uh, pretty fascinating. And I'm about 90% sure that it was my great-great-grandfather that strapped Houdini into a straitjacket in Minnesota in 1923. And now for the conclusion of the Aloise Kastner story. There were some heavy questions I had when working on the previous podcast. Unfortunately, I went with publishing the podcast before I had those answers. I didn't want to wait another week and have another week go by with no podcast. So, as fate would have it, I had the answers fairly quickly after the podcast was published. 
they came from the grandson of Alois Kastner. He was the very person who first got me interested in covering Kastner in the first place. With the answers also came some facts that I got wrong. So let me begin there. In podcast 63, I mentioned that Kastner might have been Jewish. This was based on two articles in Magic Periodicals from the time. The truth was the Kastner family was not Jewish. They were full-blooded German. And unlike Helmut Schreiber, they were not Nazis either. And they were not anti-Semites. They had at least one cast member who was Jewish, and they helped him to escape Germany during the war. Uh, he was sent to the U.S., and after the war, Kastner tried to unsuccessfully find his former assistant in New York, but no luck. By the way, this is a little out of chronological order, but Kastner was a soldier during World War I, and part of his duties, it would appear, were entertaining uh, his fellow soldiers, entertaining the troops. I thought that was an interesting fact. So it appears that Kastner continued performing his show right up until around 1942. He had gradually downsized the show, which is understandable, as he had to let cast members go along the way. But the real reason they stopped presenting the show was the constant bombing by the Allies. It merely became impossible with the heavy bombing night after night. In 1942, the Kastners returned to their home in Hohen Neuendorf, Germany, the Red Army had come through and apparently stolen everything that wasn't nailed down. That's a direct quote from the grandson. And the Red Army was vicious to the people of the town. Kastner's wife suffered at the hands of the Red Army. Kastner's granddaughter, Gabriel, was killed by Red Army soldiers. It was right after this that Kastner sent his family away. The grandson was five. He was the first to be sent away. The daughters and then Kastner's wife were sent away. They went to Bavaria to avoid further run-ins with the Red Army. And I have to admit, learning this little bit of history was a bit unnerving. I'm used to reading things from the perspective of, of an American in regards to World War II. And here I'm, I'm finding out what an actual German citizen was subjected to. And it was a, really a no-win situation for these folks. Imagine living in a world where you could be in fear of saying something negative about the government and you could be arrested or, or at least investigated for such behavior. Imagine your neighbors ratting you out because your beliefs were not in line with theirs. And then the armies that were supposed to be coming to liberate you were just as dangerous. At least the Red Army was, not the... Uh, not the, the British or the, the, uh, the Americans. I'd like to go back and revisit the death of the beloved Toto the elephant. The story I related in episode 63 was correct. The elephant had originally slept lying down. But when the air raid started, the elephant started to sleep standing up, slightly leaning itself against the wall in the process. It never laid down for several years. And then when they got the elephant back to its home in Hohen Neuendorf, the comfort of being home must have convinced the animal that it was okay to sleep on its side again. However, for whatever reason, the next morning the poor creature was unable to stand. One article said the elephant forgot how to stand. 
perhaps it was more like the animal didn't have the muscle strength to stand. Maybe. I don't know. Every effort was made, including calling the local fire department and getting a crane to try and lift Toto. Every effort failed. Toto was near exhaustion, and the decision had to be made to put the animal out of its misery. Well, as it turned out, the townspeople of Hohenneuendorf were near starvation. When the Red Army came through, they took everything and wreaked havoc on the residents. Kastner decided to have the meat from the elephant processed and given to the townspeople so that they could eat and thus survive. And you can imagine what a heartbreaking this decision had to be. Now listen to this. According to Kastner's grandson, Fred Doman, his Aunt Helma told him that Kalanag got the Kastner show following the war. However, she was not sure what the conditions of the arrangements were. Now, when I first heard this, I kind of dismissed it because there's information from other magic historians that, that kind of, well, tell a different story. Let's put it that way. But then I realized uh, that these are firsthand accounts. So perhaps Helmut Shriver, a.k.a. Kalanag, did indeed purchase the Kastner show. If not all, maybe specific parts. He was one of the few people who became wealthy during and especially following the war. Also, just because he purchased it doesn't mean it was included in his show. Kastner's original show was purchased from Ernest Thorne. Schreiber idolized Thorne, so it may have been a situation merely wanting to collect the properties of his idol. That's, I think that's pretty plausible. And here's something that Schreiber wrote about Kastner in the July 1934 issue of the Sphinx magazine. The one really outstanding illusionist, one who is well-known all over Europe, is Zaubermeister Kastner. In recent months, he has entirely overhauled his show and has provided fabulous new outfitting. His entire setting, as well as his presentation, are masterful and a great improvement over former efforts. Small wonder that he meets with the greatest success professionally as well as financially. His travels have taken him all over Europe, mostly for monthly engagements. He has played Vienna, has engagements in Czechoslovakia and Poland, and also in the Balkans, and is destined to go to Turkey. His personnel consists of 20 people, requires two railway coaches to transport, and even carries a live elephant used in a vanishing illusion at the close of every performance. In addition to his splendid illusions, he produces an entire flower garden and even presents Harry Price's experiment of seeking to change a live goat into a living person. In Kastner's hands, the experiment is crowned a success. That's a lot of praise from Helmut Schreiber. Helma, who was the daughter of Alois Kastner and also the aunt of Fred Doman, uh, told Fred that Kalanag tried to go to the United States, but the results were very bad. Everywhere the Kalanag show would go in the U.S., word got out that Kalanag was in fact a Nazi during the war, and uh, attendance just diminished. 
And I will address all of that in another podcast later in the year. Um, But for now, I'd like to stick with Kastner. Speaking of coming to America, Alois Kastner was very interested in bringing his Big Illusion show to the States. The time frame, however, was during the 1930s, and this unfortunately is also the exact time frame that Adolf Hitler gradually rose to power in Germany. A July 1934 issue of The Linking Ring mentions that Kastner has had offers, very lucrative ones, to go to the U.S., Australia, and even Asia. In April 1933, Alois Kastner was featured on the cover of The Linking Ring magazine, And besides his beautiful posters, he also had a number of metal tokens with his face on them for advertising. I just think that's really, really cool. Somehow after the war, Kastner found himself on the Soviet side of Germany, but this did not stop him from bringing out a smaller version of his show after the war. He eventually retired in August of 1954. I'd like to wrap this podcast up with a short piece that was written by Alois Kastner himself. Dear ladies and gentlemen, while you are reading these words, I am looking down at you, the magician Kastner, from a log or through a hidden curtain opening, and I am delighted to see your expectant faces. I then feel like a March uncle who leads his big children into the land of ghosts and fairies and opens up a colorful, shimmering, sadly beautiful world full of wonders for them. If you feel that way towards me, like the children in this mysteriously alluring fairy tale, then you will also feel the magic of my illusions, to be receptive to the magic of my illusion. You know that I can't do witches. What I offer you is illusion, deception, fulfillment of the longing for the miracle. And this longing is in all of us. I am a person like you, without supernatural powers, but I want to show you how our most valuable sense organ, the eyes, can be deceived. Because no matter how carefully you watch, you won't see what my left hand is doing and what the right hand is doing. And what the right hand does. And whether, when the right hand does something, Is it not the left hand that's doing something too? She has already done something long ago. Everything is deception, illusion, apparently magic. But only nice magic. Because when I turn water into wine, beer, or liquor, I deliver the finest brands that every connoisseur can drink with pleasure. You should not notice where reality begins and where the deception begins but rather be enchanted yourself. And if, after the performance, you say, waking up from a dream, that these were unforgettable, carefree hours, like in our childhood, then I am richly rewarded. Alois Kastner And that, my friends, is going to do it for the life of Alois Kastner. Next episode, we will be exploring a different conjurer, that's for sure. By the way, if you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to like the podcast in whatever way you can on your podcasting device. 
Also, if you'd be willing to give me a five-star review, that would be on, oh, on Apple iTunes or Apple, Apple Podcasts, that's what it is. That would be greatly appreciated as well. Until next month, I am Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Please be well and be safe.